beer do you want? Um, I'll go with the Mon- Modelo, please. Yeah. Okay, Modelo for you. Thank you, sir. Shale, what would you like? I'm gonna take a fat tire, I think. There you go. All right. And I'll go Blue Moon. You said that with a radio voice. <laughs> well, cheers. cheers. Cheers, gentlemen. All right, let's talk about energy. First, I think we should mention our sponsor, the Brewers Association of America. Uh, there are actually like a surprising number of, I don't know if you've noticed, breweries and wineries that have sold. There's actually a developer, I can't remember the name. There's a developer who is reasonably successful basically just developing solar for wineries. It's only not good business. Yeah. Well, let's actually talk about a real sponsor first. It's Wonder Capital, the easiest way to invest in large-scale solar projects across the U.S., solar projects that may include wineries, but not necessarily. With Wonder, you can help finance renewables and earn up to 7.5% annually. To get started, visit wondercapital.com GTM. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. We're also brought to you by Scholz Technologies Group, a global leader in balance of system solutions for solar and storage. This American company has deployed products on more than 25 gigawatts of solar projects around the world. Scholz is the gold standard for solar and storage. To learn more about how Scholz can make your project operate at the highest level, visit Scholz.com. Well, gents... This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. We've saddled up here in front of some beers, some adult beverages in a back room at the Grid Edge Innovation Summit here in San Francisco. So normally people think about sports or politics when they're hanging out, having a happy hour, drinking beers, but not us. We've decided that uh, distribution system automation and utility innovation centers and gas power plant economics are going to make our happy hour. Oh, just your regular beer talk, I guess. Well, that's David Grork, who is the uh, managing director of Indigo Advisory Group. He's actually the former senior manager of our grid practice at GTM Research. That's right. Yeah. And now you've left us for the more lucrative world of utility consulting. Yes, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Shale Khan is with us. He's the Senior Vice President of Research and Strategy at Energy Impact Partners. Hello, Shale. Hey, Stephen. Well, I, there's some lore going around GTM, David, and that is that you actually came up with the term grid edge. Is that true? Folklore would have it, yes. Um, I actually remember the meeting. Smart grid, I guess, at the time was coming to a point where it probably had a bit of a branding problem, particularly around smart metering and AMI and so on. And there was obviously a lot of consumer pushback at the time. So um, Smart Grid was, was running out of its, its, its kind of you know, luster. Uh, so the idea was to, to redefine the term Smart Grid um, to make it more meaningful to GTM's customers and to the, 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 the industry more broadly, Shale, right? Yeah, my recollection of it is that we were uh, whiteboarding. So yeah, we had had all this time thinking about Smart Grid technology and then like stimulus funding started to roll off and there was less of it getting deployed. The companies in the early sort of smart grid world were a little bit less interesting, but there was this like emerging new set of technologies and companies that we were really jazzed about that our customers wanted to know about. And we thought were going places, but they didn't quite fit the bill of smart grid. So I remember us whiteboarding a bunch of different like areas of the market. And then at some point, this may be things where like I'm just inventing a memory but I like have some vague recollection of you just like drawing a line down the middle of it at the edge of the grid where the meter was and you're like maybe it's just the grid edge I remember Scott jumped on it and he's like that's it that's the term 
And then you guys managed to create the most complicated cube of all time. <laughs> well, the problem was then we had like we were like, yeah, there's this thing called Grid Edge. Now we're claiming that it's a market. Now we have to define this market. And basically, ever since then, anyone who wants to call themselves a Grid Edge company just calls themselves a Grid Edge company. It's a pretty inclusive market. It is. It's. It, it, it amazes me how it took off. We didn't plan this, but like it was needed at that time because. There was, and, and I guess for anybody who's like not like deeply in the terminology, I think the notion of grid edge is that it incorporate, incorporates some of the smart grid technologies, some of the stuff at the, on the utility side of the meter that allows for better intelligence and better automation and so on, but also incorporates a bunch of things that were coming on the customer side of the meter, distributed energy resources and the like. And that's what was missing from the smart grid. Like the smart grid was almost entirely a grid facing market. Grid edge is broader and and uh encompasses more at the customer side and and i think that was needed at the time because there was like a growing recollection that you know where the real action was was being driven at the customer side and then the utility could implement a bunch of things to enable that yeah in fact i remember us having that debate where do we draw that line that you talked about on the board and i think at the time we said it goes as far back as distribution automation and that was kind of the the first application and then it was behind the meter activity and prosumers and, and things like that. But I think the term has come to mean more, right, around flexibility and right. grid planning overall. So it's probably gone further up the value chain. Yeah. So this was in maybe 2013. Does that sound about right? Which means that we're five years into using that term as an industry. I wonder whether it's about to subside as well. And you mentioned flexibility. Like, I think flexibility is the next big term. I think we're going to be talking about flexibility markets and flexibility enablement solutions and, you know, ISOs are designing flexibility products and things like that. I think flexibility is going to be the next five years. Yeah, but we didn't invent that word, so we'll no, stick with grid edge. but we can take credit for it. Yeah, oh, I see. We'll take grid edge to our grades. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, well, I'll drink to grid edge. <laughs> to grid edge. Cheers. <laughs> so it's long life. All right, on to the topics, gents. So I wasn't actually kidding about the lineup. Um I've chosen a few things that keep floating to the top of the conversation here at the conference related to Grid Edge, and I chose them because I think that you both have a, a unique perspective on them in the work that you do day to day. And I also want to continue to have like real conversations that get past some of the buzzy language that inevitably overtakes um, an event like this when we're talking about the Grid Edge, right? I mean, you inevitably are just going to talk about words that have a buzz to them. But I want to talk about actual implementation and, and real-world uses of certain technologies. So the first one is the role of uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Distributed intelligence, as it's often identified. So what exactly do we mean by that? Then the next topic will be utility innovation. How does a utility try to internally figure out how to invest in certain technologies that are you know could potentially break it wide open? And I think this is a really difficult space. Um, so I'd love to hear, you know, both of your takes on what an, a utility innovation center is. Like, what, what do these teams within utilities actually do? And how does that move through a big power company? And the third is one that's been in the news. We're going to talk about um, power giants like Siemens and GE. Siemens is thinking of selling off its gas turbine business. GE has slashed thousands and thousands of jobs in power generation. So have power generation giants, even those heavily invested in clean energy, completely underestimated renewables. So first to AI and machine learning. Um, 
this is kind of an issue that you've been working on for a while, right, David? That's right, yeah. What, what do we mean when we use that term exactly? Right, well, so AI, machine learning, it's a collection of methodologies to analyze data or to automate processes. So there's you know, natural language processing in there. There's the ability to train data sets and infer patterns and so on. So there's actually, when you talk about um, artificial intelligence, um, it's actually a collection of various technologies. Um, but what's happening is that because we're seeing more data being produced by the grid, we have now the ability to analyze that and to have situational awareness and you know infer insights and so on. So um, what is interesting is this kind of handshake between all this data and then the advances in, in that side of, of computer science. So let's be a little more specific. What is the new data being provided by being introduced into the grid that didn't exist? I mean, you know, the, the, from the perspective of the customer, if you don't have any distributed energy resources, you know, your power looks like it did 20 years ago. So what's the new data? Yep, good, good, good question. So I guess there's two types of new data, right? There's the data that's coming off infrastructure. So, you know, some utilities might have had 10,000 data points, whereas today they might have 100,000 data points. And that's because they're... censoring new, right. new technology on the grid. So things like capacitor banks, transformers, and so on have a bunch of sensors on them, right? So you're pulling that data back, and um, there's an opportunity to, to improve processes and to do things like predictive maintenance or not maintain something at all. So you're, you know, you're not maintaining that transformer every year. You're doing it when you think there's going to be a problem based on the data. So it's, it's kind of transforming how utilities do work. And um, by and large, but I think the other side of this is there's definitely more data behind the meter, right? So, you know, today we we obviously talked about you know um, at the conference here about chatbots and the whole customer um, experience and how that's been improved through artificial intelligence and through machine learning and um, some of the applications there. I think though there's three big swaths of application energy. Well, can I yeah. stop you there? Yeah, sorry. I just actually think it's that things like chatbots are actually like what we what are actually being implemented in a lot of industries when we think of artificial intelligence so my wife works in financial services and she does a lot of ai stuff and like some of the ai stuff they're doing is just like simple chatbots and things to talk to customers with um you think of these grand sweeping technologies, but a lot of it is like really simple, basic tools to for customer interaction. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I mean, I'm interested in the chatbot for utilities thing. So there's all these stats that are notorious, like eighty five percent of customer calls from from customers to utilities are a combination of either I have an outage, why do I have an outage, or the why high calls, why is my bill so high? Can a chatbot answer those questions? Um, there's some utilities looking at it quite strongly. Basically, where, where chatbots are being deployed now for call centers is on level one triage. So you're able to, you know, siphon out where that call should go, right? So they're using it as a way of sorting um, and routing. Which is like a better centers. version of the press one if you if you don't have power. Press two if your bill is too high. Exactly. Exactly. And it, you know, theoretically should lead to a better customer experience, right? But, um, but there, oh, there are three big areas of AI in energy. Um, you know, the first is around um, infrastructure management. So that's using all that sensor data for predictive maintenance, 
understanding from a systems perspective how you, the grid is performing and what capital plans you should have, you know, five to ten years out. And I think the second area is around renewables management. And we're seeing AI being applied to wind turbines and to solar facilities to better manage the assets around, you know, monitoring and diagnostics and how that asset is performing. Um, so there, there's a whole bunch of activity in that space around new assets and, uh, you know, the data sets um, that they're producing. Uh, the third big area is around demand management, actually. So we're, we're seeing, you know, Google uh, acquired a company called DeepMind, uh, a British company a while back. And they, they, they have some very interesting algorithms that they're applying to data centers. Um, and reducing load by up to 40%, I think, was some of the numbers. That's what National Grid um, kind of spoke about publicly. And that that's a very exciting area because, you know, you're really looking at a good business case there. So that's a, that is a good one to talk about in a little bit more detail because I think it's not intuitive how that works, right? Like you, you imagine there's a data center and it's running a bunch of servers and the servers consume a ton of power. What can an algorithm do to reduce the power consumption or the cost for that power? That's a good question. I, I, I think the business case is predicated on um, tackling the redundancy that um, a data center has. So data centers run on really high redundancy, meaning that they have too much power, backup power, and so on. By applying a more efficient demand management technique, you can match supply with demand a little bit better without having as much redundancy. So that's where you get the cost savings from. So um, I think that's an interesting application. So it, effectively, it means better real-time management of energy um, for these data centers. Yeah, we talked a while back to Brian Janis from Microsoft, who's in charge of their energy strategy broadly, both for their data centers and their like renewables procurement. And he pointed out that for all their data centers, for every megawatt of load, they have a megawatt of backup um, because they, you know, they just need, they absolutely need complete reliability all the time. They need uninterruptible power. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you could figure out a way most of the time not to need to have that much backup or to run it, uh, as often, then you save a ton of money if you're a data center because electricity costs is such a huge portion of your opex. Oh yeah, and we talked about this before. I mean, data centers, Stephen, they're like they're the the sawmills of our day, right? And um, they have been around for years in utilities. I mean, utilities were actually some one of the first industries to apply um, AI type applications to data um, in in rudimentary ways, right? From looking at asset data. I mean, it's not. It's not an entirely new concept in the industry. Yeah, and I think one of the other things that is evolving is that, so AI and machine learning, I get the way that I think about them, and you can tell me whether you think this is wrong, is I think they're like, they're like calculus in that they're challenging, but pretty soon we're going to have a lot of people and a lot of companies that can do them. It's, it, you know, the ability to develop and train algorithms is going to be somewhat commoditized. And so... Um, that's good news from the perspective of industries that can use a lot of AI, industries that produce a lot of data and can do something with that data, which, which energy certainly is. And so then the question is like, not, is there an application for AI or machine learning? It's how do you get access to data on which you can train? How do you clean that data? I mean, one of the things that I know utilities face a lot of challenges with is just like, they get a ton of data, but that data is not ready for an AI algorithm to be run on it immediately. And so there's all these like challenges just in cleansing data and getting it ready for the algorithm. And then what do you do with it? Right. And so there are some really clear use cases like, okay, there's a transformer. And historically, we would just, you know, 
check it on a certain schedule. And instead of checking it on a certain schedule, we will never check it until our predictive algorithm tells us that we should check it. And we're going to save a bunch of OPEX doing that, and we're going to have higher reliability. So there's cases where it seems really clear and obvious to me, but then there's this sort of like next level extension of a bunch of cases where, um, you know, you, you have to think harder to figure out where the value is going to lie. But at the end of the day, I think the value is in, you know, access to unique data plus knowing how to actually implement. It. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's often said that 80% of, of data when in a utility is unstructured. It can take up to seven years to swap out a GIS system, for example, right? So, you know, there's there's some base level things that utilities need to get get right before they even look at AI and machine learning. And I think, you know, there's a tendency to jump to the new products as opposed to look at the underlying, you know, data quality acquisition um, kind of problems that some utilities are facing. So, yeah, there's, there's a whole lot of work to do before we look at some of these advanced applications. Um, I think the, on the positive side, though, um, utilities are working more with startups and trying to figure out solutions to clean their data using AI. So, in fact, in some ways, these new technologies would actually help them leapfrog um, some of the current data problems that they're having. Um, one of the big issues, though, is is the the lack of quality training data, as you alluded to, Shale. Um, that's really kind of... The, the, dampening the progress of AI with, within the industry. Mm. Can you give an example of somewhere where if we had better training data, it'd be easier to do something with it? Yeah, I think it, what's really nascent in the industry is around customer data and being able to segment customers better, offer different products and services. Um, utilities haven't done a whole lot with that. Um, there are some interesting companies that are focused on this market, but I think um, that's an area that utilities are starting to look at. So better segmentation of customers, their load profiles, new product services, um, looking at perhaps different ancillary services for their CNI base, et cetera. Um, and being able to do that without, you know, have this this form of intelligence to equip their sales team. Um, so you know the the opportunities um, before before your customer contacts you, right? So that's an area that the, there's a lot of focus on right now, which I think is pretty exciting. Um, are we allowed to talk about blockchain? I, I think it's acceptable. We did. I, I just want to say we put a moratorium on blockchain on this podcast some time ago. Are you telling me it's lifted? I Steven? think so. Okay. So Power Ledger's partner. Do you guys remember? What, what's the name of Power Ledger's partner? Uh, here, Clean Energy Blockchain Clean Energy Network. Blockchain Network <laughs> is... Um, has deployed a pilot program in California. Well, just with, announced the pilot program. They haven't deployed right, it. Right. Okay, okay. Okay. Isn't that what you do? But, in yeah, I was going to say. We did. Say, <laughs> yeah, probably it's a proper project. Then. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Uh, well, we did say that we would talk about it if a utility announced a major pilot or an investment. And so you're, this you're, is on the edge. <laughs> yeah. But I'd say that you've been given the green light. Okay, good. Well, the reason I bring it up um, is. I actually think where this is all going is this idea of combination solutions where we're going to see um, some sort of distributed ledger technology, um, AI, machine learning type solutions, and this idea of embedded um, intelligence in edge devices. I think we're going to see the technology stack mature and incorporate a bunch of these different technologies. Right now, I think it's unfair to have a conversation about blockchain on its own or AI on its own or 
um, you know, the the um, intelligence within a, a device behind the meter. I think, you know, where the real value will come with all these technologies is that when we have combination solutions with these complex technology stacks that are providing more value and we're not just focused on transactions per second or we're not focused on, you know, training data. I, I think it's it's going to be a combination of all of these technologies that, that will emerge. And it won't happen in energy first. Mm. You uh, managed to get blockchain, AI, and machine learning and edge intelligence into a sense, which is if you would have added drones and robotics, I think you'd have uh, Silicon Valley yachts. Yeah. It's like inevitable. <laughs> we were talking in, I think, pretty like down to earth language. And then as soon as we mentioned blockchain, we, <laughs> I don't know, something happened. <laughs> I don't think there's a switch in the You're almost of your done with your first Modelo. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned blockchain. It's just, it's, it's on. It's kicked off. Um, well, actually you did mention uh, distributed computing, which is actually quite compelling. So you've got an immense amount of computing power out in smart meters and other devices on the edge that can take the place of the, you know, the backend IT infrastructure that utilities have traditionally used. And this seems to me to be a pretty groundbreaking development technologically. You've just got an enormous amount of computers out in the field now that are way better than anything that utilities have had before. So like that, that, how is that changing the way utilities gather and process data? That's a good question. I still think they're figuring it out. You know, when AMI programs were initially rolled out, um, let's say in 2008 or 2009, uh, utilities didn't use half the functionality of their MDM, their metered data management system. So they would suppress 99% of the alarms. And that wasn't even taken into account the fact that these um, meters have a whole bunch of other f functionality, as you alluded to, Stephen. Um, I think utilities have got better with their meter data management processes. They're better with handling alarms, and they're better with aggregating their data. There's still work to do. Um, but the potential of edge processing is huge, and we're still looking at use cases in the industry. Um, but you take total reliance out of centralized IT. You have a whole bunch more computing power. Um, and if you think of um, potential IoT applications, um, you know, utilities might be able to roll out a whole new set of products and services around demand response and so on using edge processing, which is quite exciting, but it's still really early, right? Well, I think we determined that machine learning, artificial intelligence, distributed computing, distributed intelligence, the distributed ledger, however you want to define it, is in fact a real thing. I think we can drink to that. Cheers. Cheers. If you want more cheers in your day, Go to Wonder Capital, the easiest way to invest in commercial-scale solar projects across the U.S. GTM Research recently published their ranking for the top 15 players in the commercial solar market. Do you know who ranked number eight, Shale? Wonder, was it Wonder Capital? Yeah. <laughs> in 2017, Wonder Capital financed approximately 40 megawatts of commercial solar. Well, this year, they're going to probably finance 120 megawatts. So with that growth, investors like you have the opportunity to help Wonder finance these commercial solar projects. And you can join uh, massive Wall Street banks that are getting in on the game as well. So if you want to earn 7.5% annually and invest in solar projects, go to wondercapital.com slash GTM. That's Wonder with a U, wondercapital.com slash GTM. Can I just say that we've talked on this podcast a bunch of times about how nobody has cracked the code on small commercial solar. And I will just say right now that I think Wonder Capital is as close as anybody to cracking that code. This is not, I'm not being paid by Wonder Capital for this, but I'm impressed. Like they're, they're doing it. I, I actually, I, I definitely agree.
This podcast is also brought to you by Shoals Technologies Group, a leading manufacturer of balance of system solutions for solar and storage. Shale, do you remember what the Shoals slogan is? No. Inventing simple. Do you know why? I don't. <laughs> well, I'll tell you why. No matter the product, a combiner box, a junction box, an inline fuse, a monitoring system, Shoals makes it with the highest performance standards and a drive toward elegance. You want these solar power plants and battery storage systems to be elegant on the grid, don't you, Shale? I do, and nothing says simple like a combiner box. <laughs> well, if you're looking to step up your game with the best balance of system solutions in the industry, go to Shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S, Shoals.com. So this next conversation is an extension of the technology-oriented conversation that we just had. It's about how utilities are implementing this stuff internally. Like, what are the internal teams that they're creating to think about their business strategy? And we call them a variety of names. I think we've generally called them across the industry utility innovation centers. They're small teams that um, work across the engineering teams, the business planning teams, et cetera, to try to figure out, like, and with startups out in the industry, to figure out what their strategy should be around distributed energy. And the question is, are they doing it right? Um, what are the barriers to getting traction within a big utility? And um, will they materialize some serious results? So David, we brought you here because you have a lot of experience working with utilities and you know how they're crafting these teams. And I'm curious how it's going. And I'm sure it's pretty lumpy and it depends on the utility, but can you characterize um, how internal units within utilities are functioning? Yeah, great question. I, it is lumpy, right, to your, to your point, Stephen. What, what, what's interesting is that, yeah, we're about four or five years into the major utilities that have set up these innovation teams, whether they call them utility of the future or whether it's an innovation center. Um, different utilities have tackled it in different ways, but what is emerging is that there's kind of this idea of a two-speed organization where you're not touching the core business, but you're setting up um, either an unregulated unit um, that's looking at innovation, partnering with the market, and, and, and so on. The real issue that's happened, though, is that utilities haven't been able to rate-base these things. So the investment is speculative, they're not, and they're not a, you know, rewarded for investing in, in, in some of these technologies. So the market structures are, are fundamentally flawed. Um, and R&D investments in the, in, the, in the industry have you know, fallen off a cliff. And they're kind of rebounding a little bit now. But what, so what we're seeing is, yes, some small efforts around R&D centers or innovation centers that can be a little bit more nimble and agile and partner with the market and do MVPs and not have the same kind of um, the same um, rigor that traditional utility R&D would have. And those, those utilities are able to launch products a little bit quicker. So they will work with the regulators to have, you know, a regulatory sandbox and, you know, look at new products and services for customers. Um, they'll bring in startups and incubate them, right, and uh, provide them with the data that they need to, to launch their product. And, you know, that, that is taking place. But whether that's enough or not is, is still a, a big question. And, you know, if we look at the, the European utilities and, the, you know, how they've split up their regulated and unregulated business, um, I mean, that's an interesting model, um, perhaps might point towards the future, but those unregulated businesses are, are, are struggling in Europe, quite frankly. Well, it's an interesting question about how you measure what's enough or not. So you have a, 
a handful of utilities that are making pretty serious equity investments or acquisitions in distributed energy startups. And you can be right about certain technologies at the wrong time. That's pretty common. And this is a, an industry that's very hard to predict how things will play out. So you could be an NL and an NG in the world and be making all these acquisitions and do it at the wrong time. And you could be a utility today with this small innovation unit that's really not making many equity investments and just sort of you know playing around in this sandbox, so to speak, um, or just doing market intelligence and then later make the right choices when right now it seems like they're not doing much. And so I think it's too early to say whether the utilities who maybe seem like they're not doing that much are actually doing the wrong thing. Right. It's better to be second and right than first and wrong. I think that's right. I also think that, you know, some utilities don't get enough credit for being innovative in ways that you don't necessarily think about all the time. And so we think we, we talk a lot about like the big disruptive stuff. And especially in the US, we talk about the, the utilities are facing, you know, big disruptive change. So we talk about New York because of Rev. We talk about California and what's happening with the California utilities. And there's just what I've come to learn in part through Energy Impact Partners, and we have 14 utilities who are, who are partners of ours. Um, many of whom are doing innovative things I didn't know about beforehand. I can give you a couple examples of that. Um, Avista is a utility based in Spokane, Washington, small at IOU. And they were one of the first to run an EV charging, electric vehicle charging pilot. They're rate basing a bunch of electric vehicle chargers. Um, they're testing it out. They're, they're a very variety of different types of chargers. And the customer satisfaction rates from that program are ridiculously high for a utility. They're rate basing this stuff and the residential uh, customer satisfaction from the customers who've had this installed is 96% um, satisfied or very satisfied. They also, for what it's worth, Avista owns a steam plant brew pub in Spokane, Washington, which is a long story, but another area of weird utility innovation. Another example is Oklahoma Gas and Electric, um, which actually I think of as in general is a, is a more innovative utility than they get credit for. Um, also smaller, you know, IOU, they've been running a um, variable peak pricing program since 2011. And it came with a bring your own thermostat sort of, or uh, sort of sign up for a ther smart thermostat program since back then. They have you know, a 50% adoption rate of the smart thermostats. They get 120 megawatts of peak load reduction from this program, which is a power plant. They save a power plant's worth of power at peak. Um, so, you know, stuff like that, there's actually more of that than you might realize. Now, the distinction being you can run an individual program or a pilot or something like that. You see a lot of that. What you don't see, I think, amongst the U.S. utilities for the most part is like wholesale business model transformation. And that is in part a function of what David was talking about, which is that the market structure doesn't support that right now. Hell no. Yeah, what, I mean, we use these big sweeping ways to describe utility uh, transformation, but like there's nothing out in the market to support that kind of transformation yet. It's, it's coming. And so to fault utilities for not making those sweeping changes, I think is just wrong. It doesn't recognize the reality of the market. Do you think they're innovative though? I think it's a faulty question. Yeah. Right? Like is... I'm trying to think of another example. Is Walmart innovative? Answer, please. Yes. Why? Because it forces its supply chain to do anything that it wants. It basically can control every element of its business to 
just bend powerful. prices to its will. It's powerful. Right? But it has to use creative business practices to get there. Whether or not you agree with them for social reasons, for environmental reasons, they're innovative in a certain way. On the other hand, one could say that Walmart is struggling to adapt to the digital economy and Amazon has been slowly soaking up the retail business from Walmart for a long time. So, and similarly, I feel like, you know, in some ways, if you want to look at utilities from the perspective of managing, uh, you know, a transformation that has been underway for some time while retaining reliability um, and investing in some new technologies and some business model reform and some rate reform, uh, and they're super innovative, right? It's just, I think it depends on your frame of reference, I guess is what I'm saying. Like if you're imagining them being Apple and reinventing the global economy every five years with a new product, then that's a tough benchmark to hit. But if you think of them in the context of um, being infrastructure providers who uh, are ubiquitous across the entire economy and whom we all rely upon every day trying to adapt to their changing circumstances. I don't know. I think you think about it differently. Do you think competition has played a role in innovation for utilities? That's an interesting one because it really hasn't been successful. Um, it, and, you know, it, it's led to a whole bunch of problems um, for customers and for regulators, um, which... I think is interesting because what we're talking about Walmart um, is in the face of competition. Are they innovative? Is Amazon eating their pie, etc.? I don't know if utilities are experiencing that. I mean, their competition is new. We have DER providers. There's this idea of disintermediation and so on. And th that's the competition at this stage. Is that forcing them to be innovative at the grid edge? I'm not sure if utilities are taking advantage of some of those opportunities right now. You know, it's, it's often cited that if you're going to buy an EV, you know, a trusted source of information would be your utility. And that study was done by EEI, but still, you know, it's, it's a significant finding, I think. And I, I'm not sure if utilities are taking advantage of those unregulated opportunities in competitive markets at the edge of the grid where they have a clear advantage. Sometimes I feel like we're framing the conversation wrong, and it's less about being utilities being innovative and more about utilities supporting innovation. So do I necessarily need my utility to be innovative like an Amazon or a Google? No, I want them to have a framework to support the innovation, and I want them to manage the grid properly and create an environment where the innovation can flourish. And so maybe forcing utilities to be innovative or thinking about utilities as innovative is the wrong framing in, in this conversation. I mean, maybe it's just, can utilities properly support innovation? And I know that like, that's just, that that's just like a semantic division and you it's can not, argue it no. either way, but it seems meaningful to me. I mean, a specific example of a place where a utility might be innovative and will get no credit for it if they are outside of very small circles, but would matter a ton is better managing interconnection processes for whatever, solar, batteries, EVs, whatever you want. Like utilities have control over interconnection. Interconnection is a bottleneck and a cost um, for, you know, deploying almost anything. Utilities are trying to, and I, I don't want to speak about them as if they're monolithic, but like many utilities are trying to decrease interconnection times or implement technology to do better interconnection studies that take less time. Like those kinds of things, really not sexy, 
but that's a way to support innovation, support new technologies um, that is squarely and solely in their domain. All right. Well, I think that wraps up this conversation. We've covered it nicely. I would cheers all you guys, but we're out of beer. So can we open up another beer, please, for this last piece of the conversation? I'll take a Modelo. Okay. Oh, it's over your laptop. (laughs) (laughs) Well, cheers. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so um, this last piece of the conversation is something that's actually not being talked about a lot here, but I thought was worthy of a quick chat because it's in the news. So we saw Siemens last week um, reportedly thinking about selling off its gas turbine generation unit. Um, very, very large piece of the company. Um, it's spun off other you know pieces of, of its businesses before. It's spun off its lighting division a few years ago. So this, this is not um, unheard of that it would take a big piece of its business and create another company or just sell it off to someone else. But we saw GE consider the same thing. So um, GE is considering selling off its Genbacher business. It announced late last year that it's going to lay off 12,000 people in its power generation business. And these are two companies that are probably some of the leading investors in clean tech. Siemens is a huge investor and, um, you know, builder of products and building automation um, and wind turbine components. GE, of course, has just had numerous investments in renewable energy over the year, a very long evolution of investments, but is, uh, you know, a top maker of uh, wind turbines and um, really sees the future of sensors as being important for um, making energy systems smarter. So these companies have arguably been on the forefront of energy. And now, they're saying publicly that they think they underestimated renewable energy. And in fact, Siemens CEO told Russell Gold of the Wall Street Journal, like in March, specifically that, that we have underestimated as an industry the rise of renewable energy. So what does that tell us, that you have these massive companies that are arguably pretty progressive in the industrial space that are getting caught flat-footed? What do you guys, what do you guys make of this? In some ways, I think it's kind of confusing. Because though renewables have been growing quite fast, you know, it's not like gas is going away. Th- these are these are gas turbine businesses, right? And we're we're still building a lot of new gas generation globally speaking. And in fact, most of the forecasts, even the more aggressive forecasts for decarbonization and the ones that are that are um, projecting a lot of growth in renewables, they still have expansion of gas for a while. I mean, and and a growing gas market, in fact. Um, it turns back at some point in the next decade or two, typically in these models. But, you know, for now, this is a growing market. Gas remains a growing market. So when they say they underestimated renewables, I mean, what must have been happening is that when they were acquiring these gas businesses or building these gas businesses, they thought the gas was going to grow even faster than it did. Right. And so I, I think it's important to be clear about what that means, because you could hear that and you could think, oh, renewables are overtaking gas tomorrow. And that's not that's not what's happening and that's not what's affecting their business. But if they were projecting a certain growth rate and the growth rate is, you know, 10% lower than that, it makes a big difference when you have a big business. And and that's almost exactly what it is. I think uh, GE is going to see a 10% drop in sales. Siemens is predicting double digit drops in sales. And uh, that's a pretty significant hit. And 
compared to scenarios for gas development five years ago, I think we're, we're fairly off from what we thought we were going to build or what these companies thought we were going to build. So it's not like renewables are um, pushing gas out of the market overnight, but it's it, instead it's about these companies mispredicting where the gas market would go. It's, but it's not even these companies. I mean, the, the EIA has got its numbers all wrong um, over the past 10 years. This, you know, and, if, and, and these companies are using some of those data sets as indications around business strategy. And so when you hear on uh, the energy gang, Jigger Shaw, rail against the IEA and the EIA for being too conservative, this is exactly the example that he might give. And also policymakers are making similar decisions about um, how to structure markets or what incentives to include or not to include. So there's a real problem. And this is a very good acute example of what happens when you have overly conservative data. And on the flip side of it, you mentioned GE. I mean, their investment in the predix side of their business, which is supposedly going to offset some of these um, slow numbers, um, they've overestimated perhaps the 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 impact of sensors and data and so on on their business model. Um, they haven't really realized those numbers that they initially set, you know, let the market know that they were they were looking at. So there seems to be a strategic um, alignment piece to be done within these large bohemets, effectively in energy, uh, and they're the ones that are are going to. Uh, going to kind of suffer first, right, in, in any sort of, you know, market transformation. And you would you would think that they would have their indicators right at this stage. I mean, you know, you can make the argument a few people did predict this right, but it would have been hard to predict five years ago how fast the cost of renewables and storage would come now. We see, we just saw, you know, PPA prices from this, the Excel Colorado um, had a new set of solicitation and they just got back, they selected their bids from that. And, the, and these are for you know, projects, renewable projects with and without storage, wind at $11 per megawatt hour, solar at low 20s, solar plus storage at high 20s. I mean, that's astoundingly low. It's definitely competitive with with natural gas. It beats natural gas in all likelihood. And uh, and it would have been hard to predict a few years ago. I have sympathy, you know, as somebody who used to forecast, you know, the cost of technologies for a living, like it's hard. It's hard to do that. You can just bet on the cost curve of renewables uh, and you would have been right. If you had bet on the, the aggressive cost curve of renewables for the past decade, you would have been right every time. Um, but past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future performance. And so you can't rely upon that. So I don't want to read too much into this news, right? But I'm going to. Um, is this a bellwether for the energy industry generally, for oil super majors, for big industrial companies, for utilities? Are we going to see other big companies like this start to spin off large fossil face, fossil fuel-based units of their businesses? I'll take a first shell if you want. I, I think the answer is yes. I think we will see the emergence of, and I, I mentioned it before, two-speed companies where you're going to have a good bank and a bad bank. Um, and that's what the market's going to demand, right? We've seen it in financial services. Um, I think, you know, in the energy space, we will have progressive future-focused um, companies. And then we will have, you know, winding down balance sheet type businesses. But it's a long-term play. This isn't an overnight transformation. 
No, though, to the point that you made earlier, some of the European utilities have already gone through this, right? They've had to separate their businesses. The, the fossil fuel generation business goes one way and the renewables business or the retail business goes another way. And, and you know, I think you probably do see more of that coming. Um, what will be interesting, I think, is the companies that don't ever have to do that and that manage the transition all internally. The ones, you know, the the, the the line that all these companies are trying to walk, at least the ones that recognize the transformation afoot, is how do we, you know, soak the most out of our core business as long as possible while investing sufficiently in the new stuff so that we can adapt to the transition without over-investing in the new stuff so we get out over our skis and end up a lot less profitable and, and uh, you know, sacrifice shareholders. So a fully integrated utility in a favorable regulatory environment. Uh, with an unregulated arm that can develop renewables quietly. Yeah. So FPL that seems be to be the holy grail. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, I think we can wrap it up. We have a cocktail reception to get to. Well, we're likely to finish these head beers. Start. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and have the same conversations. Gentlemen, this was really fun. David Gruark, Managing Director of uh, Indigo Advisory Group. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks, Steve. Had fun. And also the originator of Grid Edge. At least it's down in the books now. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. right. That and the tattoo that you have on your... Yeah, we don't need to mention oh, that. Oh, right. Shale Khan is the Senior VP of Research and Strategy at Energy Impact Partners. Thanks, Shale. Thanks, Stephen. Nice to be here with you in person. If you want to rate or review this podcast, go to Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. Make sure to send us an email if you have story ideas or if you have reactions to this show or you want to send us in a recorded message so that we can answer your question on the air. Podcast at greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you all at the next GTM conference with David Gork and Shale Khan. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is the Interchange Conversations on the Future of Energy from Green Tech Media.